You're listening to Within Tolerance, a podcast for machinists by a machinist. I'm your host, Dylan Jackson of Prodi Machining. And this week, I'm rejoined by Nick Polanowski of P3D Creations so soon. So you not only now have the award for longest running episode, but also the quickest return to the show. So welcome back, Nick. Yeah, thanks for having me again. Yeah, I wasn't expecting a round two, but I guess the timing worked out. So yeah, now this is podcasting or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) So... I want to kind of wrap up last episode because we missed a few things that we had wanted to talk about. But like you said, I didn't want to subject people to more than three hours. Like I, th- I think that that's the longest attention span I can ask for from a, uh, a listener. Yeah, we, we wrapped up and then immediately afterwards, we're like, oh, man, we forgot to talk about this and this and this. So, yeah. Uh, yeah so, so see one if of we the can f- squeeze some more in. Yeah. So one of the things I really wanted to touch on is you now have an employee besides you and Katie. So mm-hmm. how did that come about? What was the trigger that made you kind of look for outside help? What does he do? And then, you know, kind of just how do you sort all that out? Sure. Okay. So we've actually, we've had two. So we had um, back just after we moved into our uh, current shop, we were just feeling a little overwhelmed. We had a big job come in and we just needed some more hands, someone else to just help us tap parts and, and get things clean and deburred and just the tedious stuff that takes up time that you can kind of teach anyone. So we asked around at our local hackerspace and someone there was willing to help. We actually kept him on for about six months, just part-time. He'd come in a couple of days a week and give us a hand with things. But he wasn't really as enthusiastic about machining. He was just there to make a few bucks and that's fine. But eventually he had something come up and needed to be away for a bit. So we just kind of amicably parted ways. And then we just ran things on our own for a little bit. And in early 2020, actually right around the time everyone was going into lockdown and actually a lot of places were laying people off, I got a call out of the blue from a friend of mine, also knew him through the hackerspace. And he just said, hey, do you need any help around the shop? And I was going to say no. And I really, I stopped and thought about it for a second. I'm like, eh, you know, we can probably find something for you to do. So I didn't actively seek an employee he just kind of fell into my lap, but he was excited. He, he's a software guy. He comes from a background doing all kinds of programming. So he didn't know anything about machining or like any sort of manufacturing, but he was willing to learn. He had the right attitude. He was looking to make a few bucks and we brought him in and pretty much immediately got him right into Fusion 360. He'd done some 3D printings uh, at the hackerspace, so he wasn't completely fresh he he had a little bit of like cad background but yeah we, we started him just doing a little bit of programming we have him deburr things he'd mop the floors all just the the little the stuff that's tedious that i don't really have time to do or i my time would be better spent actually programming the complicated parts but over time he's he's been awesome and has really started to fill out a critical role here because he's he's now programming five axis parts for us and went from knowing nothing to being pretty competent in about a year and a half. And I don't even have time to give him side projects anymore because he's like mainline, you know, critical to our production. That's really encouraging to hear. And I, I guess that goes to the saying that a lot of people in this industry say is like hire for passion and not for knowledge. Yeah, you can teach the right person anything. But if if people are not interested, it's a lot harder to get them to learn actively and 
like try to get better and, and you know care about their the quality of their work and everything if they're just there to to do their eight hours they might be okay to like load a machine but if you want someone doing the actual like skilled work you kind of want someone with passion because that they they'll be more likely to like improve on their own and ask questions when uh, when they have them and it also just makes it more pleasant to work around them when you can nerd out about something with them like we'll have a new fusion feature will drop and I'll say, I'll send him the release note he's like whoa dude that's awesome i can't wait to try it like that <laughs> makes me happy as an employer that that like i'm not the only one who is really excited about those sort of things and it it just makes the whole shop feel kind of cohesive like everyone's got a little bit of skin in the game and we try to take good care of them. We always, whenever we go to the scrapyards, you know, they get they just give us cash for our aluminum turnings and everything. So we'll we'll go and do a company lunch every time we make a scrap run, and like try to, you know, ch- chuck a few bucks or or you know a surprise company paid meal his way, like when things are going really well for us, and just try to make sure that it actually feels like he's appreciated and stuff. I I want to be the kind of employer that people want to work for. Not the one that they, you know, go grumble about on the weekends. Yeah, definitely. How do you handle how do you handle managing somebody else when you're so strapped for time? Because I know that's like a lot of people's hesitancy hiring somebody is like, oh well if I hire somebody, I'm not, I'm going to have to spend two months being half as productive, making sure that they know what to do. Yeah, and that's absolutely true. It this is one of my struggles. Like I, I don't have a, a clear cut answer for that because especially when we first hired him on before he kind of knew how things worked in the shop, I did spend a lot of time just like stopping whatever I was doing and going and teaching him something. And then sometimes we do the same thing a week later and he needs a refresher. And sometimes he'll come in and I'm like, shoot, I don't have anything for you to do. And I've got to stop and stop whatever I'm working on because it might be something that is just beyond his skill level or just something that I have to handle for for whatever reason, and then have to you know come up with projects so he's not just twiddling his thumbs and everything. And like usually, if I stop and I think for a couple of minutes, I'm like, oh yeah, there's this thing. This is perfect for you. Go go jump on it. And he's he's fine with that. But I always have to think ahead a little bit and have a something of a plan for every day because if I'm just doing things on my own, I can make it up on the fly. But when there's someone else that's looking to me for guidance, it needs to be a little more structured. Yeah, definitely. I, I know I was listening to The Bomb this week and Saunders keeps pushing Grimsmo to have like his own wiki. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm going to start doing that. I, I like started looking into hosting your own wiki like on a local server or something. And I was like, oh, that'd be great. Because like Brad, you know, I'll be like, oh, can you go print off labels for that package and, and create a shipping label? And like most of the time I'm doing that stuff. And so he'll be like, can you like, where do I put this information again? And I'm like, oh, you know, this this should just be written down somewhere and make it easy. Yeah, and if you if you put the time in up front to do that, it does pay off in the end. I have been guilty of not doing that at all. There's way too much stuff that's just in my head or or Katie's or our our guy's head and it's just it's a lot to actually try to write all of that down. And especially when you're in a shop that's constantly improving, that means that what you write down this week might be out of date in a month. If you start doing something different, you have to remember every time some process or procedure changes you have to go back and update it so it i love the idea of a wiki i think in a sufficiently large company it's a great idea for me where we're two and a half three people it's just hard i i don't know that i have the 
bandwidth to put something together like that. But I do know that that means that if, if he ever leaves or we ever need to hire someone else on, it's going to take up a lot of my time again to train somebody else. So that, like, there's a just a balance there to strike on you know, how much you do up front and then how many people you plan on onboarding and how much time you're willing to dedicate to the maintenance of documents like that. Yeah, I think a lot of it for, I, I want to do it mainly for myself. Like today I was moving one of the zero points on my orange fixture plate and I was like, shit, what's the, the, the torque on the four mounting screws? And I like had to go back through my email and like, you know, Gmail super searchable. So it was easy to pull it up, but it was like, man, this should just be like, an easy jump into whatever and then type in orange subplate and it'll be like there or something yeah. like that. So yeah, well, if you find a good platform for that, that's not Gmail. My, I've actually not found Gmail to be that reliable when searching it. I've had things before where I, I type the word verbatim and I try to search it and it doesn't come up. And then I, I know about what time it came in and I'll go and I'll filter by the date and then I'll find it. So I haven't found it to be the most reliable thing, but if you find a really good platform, definitely let me know. Yeah, I definitely will. Cause I, it's my first boss at my first job had a, a program called AZZ card file. That was, I think it, it was either designed in windows 95 or DOS, but mm. it like, it was literally somebody probably just as computers were coming, like personal computers were coming into being going like, I have a physical card file and now I want this to be on my computer. Yeah. And that was where my boss had to store every single maintenance item we've ever did, any kind of job specific information. And you would just create a new note card and type whatever. And like the best part of it was that the search was incredibly powerful. Mm-hmm. Like within two seconds, I could have, like I would type in 89 for like the 89 Kitamura we had. And like I'd have every single maintenance item we'd ever had on it, how to fix it like pictures if there was any pictures and i was like this is kind of cool i mean i I, i'm not going to use that program because i want something with a little bit better ui but it was cool like it was it was really handy to have so i I understand the value of something like that yeah and i've looked for something like this in the past but my issue is it was i'd either find programs that are built for massive businesses that just require a lot of setup and onboarding and they they almost do too much or you find something that's just like really narrow and stripped down and you start using it for a moment and then you realize, oh, I can't easily upload a picture to this. Right. Or it has some other silly limitation like that that makes it difficult to use. And it, there's, there's a good balance where it doesn't take too much thinking. It doesn't take too much like administrative overhead to get it going. But it's still flexible enough where you can go and put rich media in there and you can attach a, a PDF manual. You can attach pictures or a video or or something if that's applicable and then yeah yeah, of course still being able to search it and share it and not costing a fortune right i mean asana does a pretty good job of that but like for some reason i just never clicked with it like Mm -hmm. it, it seemed like it was very easy to abuse and misuse and so like i don't know i just don't like systems like that where it's like i've worked at places that used it as their like place to put job notes and all that stuff. And it just seemed like it was never up to date and never, but, but I guess that just goes to the people and, and how you train them and stuff. Yeah. And I also know that I'm not that kind of person. I've historically never been that organized. I try. It's like, I, I aspire to be a morning person whenever I can wake up at four or five in the morning and get going. I love it. It's phenomenal. It is my favorite time of the day, but that doesn't happen 
<laughs> I'm more of a wake up at like 10, 10.30 in the morning person and then work through midnight. Right. Like I, I'm, I'm a night owl aspiring to be a morning person. And just, just the same, I am kind of a disorganized, messy person aspiring to be someone who's really neat and clean and organized. And it's frustrating. But while I will continue to try new things in hopes that I discover the one that clicks with me, I also just have to work with what I have. And sometimes that just means not trying to force it and engineering around my own weaknesses. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a a firm believer in the saying that if it's easy, everyone will do it. And if it's at the least bit hard, no one will end up using it. Mm -hmm. Like humans are lazy creatures by nature and will find some way to avoid work no matter what. So this is why my tool organization scheme in the shop changes like every three months. Yes. So speaking of tool organization, I mentioned on the last podcast and I I told you over DM, I remembered the second I hung up with John, but you were the one who printed the little tool tube holders for your machines. And I'm definitely, I've got to get my FDM printer hooked back up and and get one of those printed for each of the speedios. But I think that that's such a genius idea because I firmly believe in putting the tools back in the, 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 tubes because some of them don't even laser their tools anymore and it's like mm-hmm. what tool is this like i, I don't know hope i know yeah yeah i guess for anyone who didn't catch that basically i just printed a little tray that has the same number of positions in it as the number of tool changer slots in the machine so on my umc i have 30 tools available so i've got 30 little rectangular uh, squares they're all labeled and when i go and i load a tool into the machine instead of just leaving that sleeve from the tool in on the toolbox or in a pile somewhere, it goes in the position that the tool went into in the machine so that when you pull it back out, you can easily find the sleeve again and put it back. And then for things that don't come in sleeves or that wouldn't fit like face mills or just like regular twist drills that just kind of come in bulk packages, I 3D print little tokens that represent them. So there's like a, a little 3D printed face mill that fits into the slot nicely. And it's labeled for like 63 millimeter, 45 degree face mill. And I, I did like a multi-filament color change so that there's good contrast and you can read it. And I just whenever my printer is idle, I'm just printing more of the drill tokens for every drill size that exists. So, And those just go in my drawers that hold the drill. So when I grab a drill, I grab a token, put it where it's going in the machine. And uh, then I know what has ended up where. Now... Again, I am a flawed human, and I forget to do this sometimes. But I have aspirations of this working great. I just have to <laughs> I have to get ahead of things enough where I'm not in a rush. Because when I'm in a rush, all this stuff goes out the window, and that's, that's kind of the problem. It's like, uh, I really need every second I can get because these have to ship today. So you know, forget all the organization, organization, just rip the tools out of the holders, load the new ones, touch it off, and let's go, go, go. Yep. But again... I aspire to have enough free time in my day that I can spend five minutes an hour cleaning up and organizing. And if something has gotten out of date, I can correct it. And, and, you know, otherwise try to clean up as I go. And I can totally empathize very often. Like Brad is very much a neat person. And I, like you, aspire to be a neat person. But when I'm in a rush, like he'll come in and, and text me like, dude, what the hell did you do at the shop last night? <laughs> like, it looks like a tornado hit the shop. And I'm like, I shipped the parts if that matters. And he's like, yeah, but can you clean a little bit? I'm like, yeah, yeah, just leave it for me. I'll clean it up when I get in. 
So yep. I yeah. am very familiar with that. That's what Saturdays are for. Right. Yeah. Saturdays are great for that. <laughs> yeah. It's, I it's... have to do my weekly reset. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and like since we talked last, because we talked just before Christmas, and then you took, I think, a week off, but like we have been nonstop. I think I've been working either six or seven days a week since then to try to catch up on all these rush orders. And it like, I've done a little bit of cleaning. I feel pretty proud. Like the shop does not look too bad. Like maybe a, a tropical storm, not a hurricane, but yeah, it's, it's tough. Like, I, cause I like to have a clean shop. Like I, it's better for my mental health and mm-hmm. clarity and all that. But like, yeah, when you're in a rush and you're like, man, I, I'm literally packing parts five minutes before I have to leave to hit FedEx just before the last ship time like you okay know. good it's not just me oh no 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 no. i i have on three or four occasions left and driven much too fast to fedex knowing i will be late and just hoping that the fedex driver is late because he very often is yeah or we have a fedex ship center near us so that's like one of their regional hubs and they shut the doors at seven thirty, and depending on who's working sometimes they will take pity on you. And there, there's like one guy there who is very strict. If it's 7.30 and he's locked the doors, you're out of luck. Maybe even if it's 7.29. But there's another lady who at 7.31, 7.32, if you're just like, I just need to drop this off and it's already labeled and you just have to kind of throw it at them, they'll, they'll take it. But it really depends. And I don't like pushing it that close, but sometimes stuff goes wrong and the only thing that gets it out on time is the pressure of knowing that you have a hard deadline and you you push through whatever struggles you're having, pack things really quickly, print shipping labels, run around like a madman, and then, yeah, you get it there just in time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, 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 there's, there's something weirdly satisfying about just barely making it, but I also realize that I, that shouldn't be the case. I, ideally, right. I wouldn't be cutting it anywhere near that close. Yeah. Now, I, there's one... One that sticks out of my mind is like such a win. And it was a Zometry job that had like, I think it had eight ops. Like it was for sure should have been a five axis part. And I had like mm-hmm. all these fixtures I made and soft jaws and blah, blah, blah. And like through the eight ops, I had lost my two setup pieces and got down to the last op. And on the last part, I had not made my fixture. So you couldn't load it 180. Oh, no. Lo- and I loaded it 180 and scrapped my last but my last good part and in the span of like an hour and a half or two hours had to set up and run a part through eight ops and like just made it to FedEx just as they were like the, the FedEx, the express driver was leaving. And I was like, here, can you take this? He was like, sure. And like took it. I was like, like, you know, it was, it was just one of those, like such a win. Can't believe I did it. Everything came out. All right. But like should not have come out. All right. Kind of things. Yep. Oh, job shop life. It's, <laughs> it's fun and stressful. And yes. th- there is a little rush you get out of that though. And I I have to wonder if that's not what kind of keeps me going cuz th- there are a lot of parts that just kick my butt and it's frustrating and like people ask for dumb features on parts that just like there is a better way to draw this but th- they're like nope it has to be this way for some reason and the deadlines are short and you realize that you maybe underbid a job because there was some gotcha feature that you didn't catch or you didn't realize the gravity of when you're like, eh, I could probably do that. Yeah. So pulling that off, like there is a big endorphin rush. Totally. And and yeah, especially with, with the deadlines too. Yeah, it, it's, um, it's really tough. 
but it wears on you if you do that too much. <laughs> yes, I, I, I will say I've gotten significantly better at quoting and like understanding how much I actually can get done versus like hypothetically how much I can get done. It's the Grimsmo rule of pie. Right. I've, the trick is you just have to actually honor that because you can start doing some five-dimensional chess and go, okay, so I think it's going to take this long. So that means it's going to actually take this long. But then like you, you're you like, okay, but then do I need to add the rule of pie on top of that? Or because <laughs> I think it's going to take this long, can I actually like optimize this? Like You can get in your own head about things and end up psyching yourself out. Yeah, and still come up short even when you thought you accounted for it. Yeah, it, it's it is job shop life, you know. You just like so there are some days where I can set up and run eight ops, and there's no issues, and I can get it all done. And then there's some days where like one single dead easy op, I blow up two drills or something, and it should be done, and it's not, and you know I I leave frustrated. So like it yep. just it is what it is. So one of the other things we missed last time, and we got a question about it this time from George, was paperless parts. Pros and cons, has it helped you with getting jobs? Do you feel like you've won more jobs due to the ability to quote faster? I definitely have a question about this. And actually, I don't know if it's a correction or just a mindset change. So in what will have been last week's episode for everybody, but actually was recorded just before Christmas with mm-hmm. John, I had said in the episode, like I am going to have to get a five axis and was like dead set. Like, you know, I got to do this. And literally in the three weeks since that, I was like in the shower, just thinking about business and realized that is the technician in me talking mm-hmm. and very much not the business owner in me. That is me going like, I want new toy. Give me new toy. And it's the wrong business decision. Like as much as I want to play with all the cool five axis stuff. And I see people like you with a five axis. I'm like, man, that'd be, would make all these parts so much simpler. I realized it would mean other machines sitting. And so that's the dumbest thing I could do. And really what I'm going to have to do. And what I'm going to do this year is invest heavily in either time or money in getting my quoting under control where Brad and I can both quote and be within five, 10% of each other, whether that's paperless parts or Digifabster or you know, just refining my spreadsheet and doing as much automating of the programming process. And so like doing mm-hmm. all of my, cause like my tool libraries are super bare bones right now. I need to go through and actually really flesh those out with presets for all the different type of operations. Uh, I'm going to get my posts done professionally so that I don't have to do any hand editing anymore. Cause that's just incredibly stupid. Yeah, and I time highly recommend that. Yeah. So those are the things I'm going to be focusing on for 2022. Like that is the smart business decision. And I've got to put the Dylan want to go fast part of my brain on hold. Just for now. put it on a six month pause, come back to it mid year. Right. Right. And you know, worst case, they always have end of year deals depending on what machine tool manufacturer you're looking at. Yeah. And there's IMTS but, this year and you know, th- yeah. th- there will be opportunities for me to get what I need later on. But right now what we need is for more machines to be up more of the time. Mm-hmm. All right. So paperless parts. So I've gone through probably the same journey that everybody else has with quoting. Quoting sucks. It's probably my least favorite part of this. I actually don't like any of the money parts of running a business, but unfortunately running a business is mostly about money when it comes down to it. So I have to deal with a certain amount of it. I started out like 
I didn't know what machine times to estimate for things. So like in the very early days, I would literally kind of rough program things in Fusion to see how long it would take. And then I'd just throw an hourly rate on that and add material. That's okay, but that's labor intensive. And then you start to get a feel for it. So then I had like a spreadsheet and I'd kind of eyeball it. And that's okay, but I mean, that's like just my opinion, man. Right. So and that made it hard for like to have Katie help me with it, and I I was still inexperienced at the time, so that didn't really help. And at some point, I heard I think it was like Grimsmo talking about ProShop. I'm like, ah, I should get ProShop. I'd like to manage my jobs, and they have a quoting module, and it sounds like it could help things. So we jumped in on that, and it just it didn't really work out. It it was definitely designed for a bigger company with slightly different goals and setups than us. And it really, while it did most things we needed it to, it was just really heavy on like the data entry. Like, Cause you're not you, AS9100 or anything. And so you don't need the paper trail that those shops need. Exactly. Yeah. I don't need to audit every mouse click of my process. I, I needed to get pricing fast and be able to schedule my jobs. And like, it, it had some really cool features, but for the cost, and for, for how kind of clicky and time-consuming it was, I, I found I was just not really getting as much out of it as I should. So we ended up setting up Airtable as sort of a rudimentary like MRP system just for like bare bones, job information, tracking, and scheduling and stuff. But we still didn't really have the quoting worked out. Like I tried to make an Airtable-based quoting spreadsheet, but again, same pitfalls as Excel. And Online Metals emailed me and they were like, oh, hey, we have this stock yield calculator. It's in this thing called paperless parts. Check it out. It's free. So I pulled up their viewer and I could like upload a part and I could see like what I'd get out of a bar and it would tell me the price. Like that was kind of neat. And I noticed on the left side that it was doing all kinds of geometry analysis as well. It would say like, oh, hey, there's a, a deep fillet here. Here's a, a concave radius that you might not have seen. Like, hmm. What's that? I, I clicked on the main paperless website and I discovered that they kind of have an automatic solid base quoting system, which is what I wanted because I've been emailing Zometry for, I mean, not recently, but in the early days, I emailed them like, hey, is there any way to like white label your quoting software? Can I just have personal Zometry from my website? Is this a thing? And they, they weren't really planning on that or interested in it, which I think is a missed opportunity. But anyway, that's, uh, we, <laughs> they've gone different ways they've got their thing i figured out my thing so yeah paperless parts was like it got my attention because i'm like cool personal zometry quoting engine thing and i signed up with them did the onboarding and took a little bit of tweaking but i've got it dialed in pretty well now and i like it it's still not fully automated but it gets me 90 percent of the way there the moment somebody uploads something to our website. And I really just have to sanity check it. Sometimes it's way off, but it, it'll be obvious because someone will upload block with holes and it will say, oh, that's $9,000. And it, <laughs> it's because of like some artifacts that came in there because they exported a modeled thread from SolidWorks or something. And you know, then I'm like, oh, okay, that's obviously wrong and I can correct it. And like for really tiny detailed parts, sometimes it's like, oh, you can remove all this material instantaneously because a quarter inch end mill can clearly just burnt that off. It's like, <laughs> mm, maybe not because I actually need like a 5,000 ball end mill for that, but nice try. But like, I'd say for 80% of parts, 
it has, it, I can turn quotes around in just a few minutes. And then for everything else, I mean, you still have to do some massaging by hand, but they, they give you a really nice template to work from. They've got a nice slick quote uh, page that you send to your customer and it's like a checkout page and you can easily quote the, you know, one, 10, a hundred, a thousand that people always look for, or ask for, and they can just click which one they want and they can click add-ons like finishing processes or inspection, or they, they can choose lead times. So if you want to just give someone basically a grid array of here's one part to a thousand parts and here's having a thousand parts tomorrow or having one part in a month and like they can, they get to pick and choose and they're not, they don't, you don't have to make five different revisions of a quote. Okay. You just give them one and you can, customer is free to choose variations, press checkout, and then give you a PO or a credit card. And like, the, it, and it all works nicely and it's, it's clean. And I think my customers appreciate that. I personally like it. I hate when someone just sends me a PDF invoice and I've got to like call them and give them a credit card number. So having something that feels like a 2020 experience, not a 1985 experience is nice. Yeah. And like, that's not necessarily even apparent to the customers just looking on my website. Like I have like a sample quote linked so that if people are curious, they can click it. And like 75 people have done that over a year or so. So it, people must look at it and maybe that sells them on us. But really it's when they send in the RFQ and we turn it quickly and they get this nice quote back. Like I hope that inspires some confidence and maybe helps make us some sales. So do you think it's worth the money? Because it's not cheap it's what six grand a year or something like that is that what that works out to i'm on the 300 a month plan so that's for me it's 3600 uh, oh that's I, not too bad yeah it's 300 dollars a month uh, at least uh, i don't know if i got grandfathered if they changed pricing so this is all as of last may when we got onboarded with them i think okay was that the year before it's all so, blurring so 2020 together. through <laughs> present has all kind of blended. Anyway, we've been with them for either about a year or about a year and a bit. And assuming the pricing is about the same, I'd say it's worth it for just the time savings alone, quoting jobs and okay. the ease of making revisions. And I actually use it as my single source of information for like, just I, I, I look at the solid model in their viewer because it does lots of cool analysis stuff that's actually hard to do in Fusion like figuring out countersink angles. Yeah, they they, it, they do a really good job of that. And also I can have a PDF linked to it and I can switch really quickly between the PDF and the solid and I can make annotations in either the 3D view or on a PDF um, and like actually do some pretty fancy stuff. So yeah, they, their viewer is amazing. Their quoting side is pretty good. And then the like order management side is clunky and I don't really like it. Okay. They're supposed to be making progress on that. Countersink angle and inside radius on like a counterbore or something is painful to figure out in Fusion. Yeah. Like you have to so, project a sketch and, you know, for radii, you have to actually draw a radius that inter intersects the points and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. It'll just give you a list of all the holes and it'll pick up countersink. So you just click the countersink drop down and it tells you like what the angle is. That's awesome. Um, and what the depth is and the major and minor diameters. So yeah, that. The viewer alone is nice. And I think you can use that for free. Like you can upload your parts and just use the viewer if you want. I think you only have to pay if you want the quoting software and everything else. So you can try it before you okay. buy it, I think. And then the last part of his question, do you think that you've won more jobs due to the ability to quote faster? Oh, absolutely. I've 
previously things would come into my inbox and I'd go, okay, I'll get to that soon. And then it either gets buried in my inbox or I keep on putting it off. And then next thing I know, it's been two weeks. I'm like, shoot, well, that's a lost opportunity because mm-hmm. no one in their right mind is going to give us work if we took two weeks to get them a, a price on it. But if I can turn that an hour or you know, whenever I have a chance to sit down or even, even in a day or two, I feel like is pretty good for a lot of shops, especially smaller ones if they don't have like dedicated people doing quotes and stuff. Like if you get things back within 48 hours, I feel like that's pretty reasonable. Yeah, but I, I, I think if you can do... do 24 hours, you beat 80% of the shops out there. Exactly. And like, we're also, we're, we're so busy that like, I, I want to give everyone specialized attention and get things back to them right that second. But in the end, I only have so much time. So while I aspire to turn things in an hour or two, yeah, like 24, 48 hours is probably the upper end of, of what I actually achieve. But you know, on average, it's usually same day. And it depends on the part too. Like if someone gives me a, a a single part that's simple, I will open paperless and go, yep, looks good and send it. If someone sends me a package of 40 parts and they've all got different materials and it's stuff I've never heard of before and they've got tight tolerance, it, I still need to go in and analyze that and make sure that it's something that we can do uh, for a competitive price in a timely manner. And I'm not going to run into like major problems. Does but it do any OCR like with a PDF or is it just strictly solid model based? I don't think it does. Okay. So you cool can't give it like a, a solid model and a print and have it kind of figure like, Oh, this is a tight tolerance. I probably should add more money. No, here. I don't think okay. it does that right now. And that's something I would love to see them add uh, yeah. is some kind of tolerance awareness. I kind of so basically it's, it's really programmable you can make it work however you want they have their analysis engine that just runs but then you you put rules on top of it and it's all basically scripted in python or they have a python mini language that they've built on top of it so it's you have a set of commands that you can use but you can also build out all kinds of logic and you can say okay if the part is this big treat it this way if it's this big treat it this way if it's this material use this set of rules and like you can really build up a comprehensive set of parameters on how to evaluate and price apart. So there's nothing saying that you can't have just a little box that you just say, okay, there's five tolerances that I consider tight and it goes and applies some multiplier to the price. Like you can certainly do that. I have one for like threaded holes because I can't pick those up, but I'll just go count up the threaded holes and say, okay, there's, you know, 25, holes smaller than m6 and there's like two holes larger than m12 and you know it charges whatever for the small ones and a little bit more for the big ones and it just adds that on as just a nominal extra charge per part but like the majority of the machining and stuff is quoted and the times are pretty accurate interesting but i mean there's it's one of those things where there are no rules you can make it what you want and i actually really like that versus trying to force you into any certain way of pricing things because everybody does do it a little different and oh yeah. When, when you're onboarding, they will look at how you traditionally do it, and they've got some templates that can get you started. If you just do like you know a, a minimum hourly charge, and you just say, okay, this is a half a day part plus materials. Well, they can set it up where it'll do that. Or if you really want to do like per piece pricing, like I do, and quote everything individually, but like have some minimum set or something like that, you can do that. And if you, I think it does sheet metal too. And it has like 3D printing analysis. And I think there's even wire EDM. 
Like there's all kinds of different interrogations you can do. And those each can be assigned their own set of rules and you can make processes. So my milling and my turning are separate, but I also have a combined one that's like mill turn. So if I'm doing some stuff on the, that's going to need live tool work, it prices that a little different than just straight two axis turn parts. So and sure. then I also have a, another one that is like a lathe that flows through to the mill. So if I have to, if I can't do it with live tools and I need to actually put it in another machine, I have a combined process for that. So yeah, you can set up like an unlimited number of, of those. And then I also have stuff that automatically prices for like bead blasting. It looks at the surface area of the part and it just charges a minimum and then a nominal amount based on the area of the part. Interesting. And okay. I mean, like you can actually do some really cool stuff if you geek out on it. That's awesome. And I, I don't think they actually advertise that as much as they should because I didn't realize going in how flexible it was and like all the neat things you could do. And then they have an API. So I mentioned their ordering section is kind of subpar and we use Airtable. So what I've done is, well, actually what our employee did because he has that awesome software background and I, I just kind of did the architecting of it is we have made a connector between Airtable and paperless parts. So whenever we place an order or a customer places an order in paperless, it goes and moves all of the relevant job information over to Airtable. It pre-populates all kinds of different fields for us. It pulls over any finishing processes that are being done, lead times, notes that are specific to that customer and like good stuff like that. And it saves so much data entry. Like I can have a part go from customer uploading an RFQ to being in my job queue with, I think, two clicks from me. And that's just like, you know, assuming the part priced right and everything in paperless. That's just me pressing send RFQ and then like confirming that it's sending with the message that I want. Because then the customer will get the RFQ, they'll put in their PO or their payment information, and then that'll kick back to paperless and then send things to Airtable and I'll just get an email notification that there's a new job. And we actually, we have a, a Slack bot that's one of our dog's faces is on it. So yeah, Shiva <laughs> bot says, woof, there's a new order. It's you know, due on this date, it's for this many parts and it's for this customer. I, I was listening to your job shop show appearance and heard you mention that. I was like, that is... That's pretty slick that like you get a notification and you're like, oh, there's a new job. Cool. Let's yeah, go. I always know as soon as something new comes in and it sometimes I still have to go back and forth with customer bit. Sometimes people just can't figure out the checkout button that's giant and blue and easy to press. And I have to facilitate <laughs> it manually. I don't know. I, I don't judge. Different people are comfortable with different amounts of things. And I don't, I think sometimes our nice quote emails go to spam because they're sending from paperless servers as us. And I think that triggers certain corporate spam filters, but I'd say 90% of the time it, it works right. And it's just kind of, yeah, it's like having zometry for my own shop. So speaking of that, I have a question. Have you ever, cause you can backfeed parts through zometry to see what they would quote them as. Mm -hmm. Have you ever compared paperless to zometry and see what they would quote? Yeah, I totally have. That's actually how I did a lot of the initial tuning. Okay. Is I'd, I'd go shove it through Fictive and Zometry and a couple of the others. And then also like quote something by hand myself or like look at my historical numbers. So I would use, I wouldn't use new parts to calibrate it. I'd use stuff that I'd already done. Right. So I'd look at how I quoted it myself and then how a few other automated services did it. And then I'd try to find parts that might be outliers and use that to, to tune how my pricing model was set up. So that actually helped a lot. 
how long did it take you to tune your quoting engine to where you felt super well as confident as you do now? It is an ongoing process. Okay. But I'd say maybe two to three weeks before I was mostly leaning on it. And then another month or two before I, I had worked out a couple of the other bugs. And like, that's not me working on it full time. It's just something would come up. And instead of going and hand massaging it myself, I'd go and fix the root of the problem, which meant taking an hour out of my day to either do it myself or to shoot an email off to them and say, hey, I have this situation. Can you guys like advise me or can you just fix it? Because they'll do that. Like they, If you have some minor fixes that you need, they can go in and do it for you. And they've got professionals there who do this all day and they can fix it in five minutes, something that would take me three hours. But if, if you need like major support, then of course they, unless you're on like one of their really high tiers, I think they charge you a little extra if, if you want them to just do it all for you. Right. So a little sense. bit of self-serve is necessary if you're on a budget, but I mean, that's every professional grade software ever. Yep. A hundred percent. But yeah, that's, that used to be one of my favorite tools. And actually for a short period of time, I just quoted things through Zometry and then I knocked like 20% off because I knew they were, they came in a little high somewhere in between the like spreadsheet and pro shop era. That's kind of what I did. Now, it didn't give me great feedback on my margins and like what my material costs would be, but I could sort of reverse engineer that. I, I don't know. At some point, they stopped calling me because they realized that I was just using it for that, but I was a partner with them, so they didn't really care. Right, right. Like, yeah, we're, we're making our money from you one way or another. So do you put in material costs to paperless part, like per poundage, or are they pulling from like online metals or some other online um, vendor? Both. Okay. So I, I can put in, they have a database, I can put in a just per pound cost for materials, or you can just have like a bar length set up. So you can just say, okay, I'm charging a 12 foot bar for everything, no matter what it is. You can just, you can say, okay, figure out what the stock size is, and it, it will do that for you. It'll add a certain amount of stock all around your part and say, okay, we recommend this size. Online Metals has it for $18, or it's going to be $21 at your $5 per pound rate. And you can easily toggle between those modes. You just set those up as a default for one of your processes. And that's so you can have a different one depending on whether you're doing lathe work or mill work or whatever have you. Okay, uh, great. But yeah, very customizable. It's nice like that. Or you can manually override it very easily. If, you, if you're like, eh, material prices are up a lot. My per pound rate's probably out of date. And you just go get a, a quote from your main supplier. Okay. Awesome. I, I, in no way meant this to be a paperless parts ad, but uh, I was just, like I said, these are my focuses for at least the first six months of the year. Yeah. So I'm very oh, curious. It, it is not perfect software. It has its flaws, but it is of what I have tried so far, the best thing I've found for us. So like every word in that sentence has an asterisk next to it. <laughs> yeah. For now, this time <laughs> for us. <laughs> Yeah. It's pretty good. I like it. It is worth the money for me, but I I also did have the hesitation about the price leading up to getting it. And like you got to pay the implementation cost up front too. So it's like, okay, a couple thousand dollars to get, get onboarded and then the monthly. So like it, it is an investment. Right, right. As anything good is. But it's, is it's a time saver for me. And that's really what I like. I'm, I'm happy to pay for time savers, whether that gets me more work through the shop or whether that gets me more time on the weekends to sleep. It all comes around in the end. 
Great. So speaking of automations, the other thing I really wanted to talk to you about and you know, this episode is quickly becoming just ask Nick about all the things I'm interested in. But well, that's um, why I'm here, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The Shelly stuff. So you've you were showing on the Discord that you've now Stream Deck automated most of your shop, which is just super cool. I want to dive into that and just like how neat it is and how you accomplished it and all the fun stuff. Okay, so I really do not like getting up and walking across the shop to press a button. That seems really silly. I, I would do that so many times a day to turn the air compressor on, to turn the shop lights on, to go turn them off because they draw a thousand watts and that's 30 cents a day of power. So that means that I'm spending a significant amount of money. If I'm like, if I'm sitting at my desk programming, my shop lights don't need to be on, but if it's all the way across the shop, I don't turn them off. So that's kind of where I started. I, I was like, okay, can I just get a relay and turn the lights off remotely? So I got like a ESP32 boards. I think those will just take like Arduino code, put a relay on it, and I would toggle my shop lights. I'd toggle my air dryer, just like calling a URL or something. And then I figured out how to get that talking to Google Home so I can say, hey, Google, turn the shop lights on. And that's really nice. But this is kind of just spiraled, and now I want to automate everything. So, yeah, I have these boards that I found called Shelly, and they make all kinds of variations. They have the Shelly 2.5, which is a two output, 120 or 240 volt, 10 amp relay board. There's the 3EM, which is a three phase power monitor and contactor control. There's the Uni or Uni, that's for like 12 to 36 volt devices, AC or DC. And what they all do or what they all have in common is they're just switches that you can actuate remotely via the internet. But what these have, what, what's different about these than like your typical smart switch is they're really like hacker friendly or maker friendly. They've got all kinds of different ways to hook into them. There's an API, you can call a URL, you can use their web server, you can use their app, you can connect them to Home Assistant, Alexa, Google, Google Home, whatever. So you're not just locked into the, the app that every smart switch uses, which is some sketchy thing that's going to be off the app store and brick all your devices in a year. And even if that happened with the Shelly's, they support Tasmoda open source firmware. So you can load that on and like you, you're not going to be stuck with useless hardware. So that's why I kind of went with them. And they are industrial enough. Like they have some DIN rail mounted ones now. And they seem to be able to run like high current. And they also do power monitoring. And that is, that's one of the most exciting things that I didn't expect to be interesting. Because I can plug in with one of their Shelly plugs, I can just plug in any 120 volt device and get power information. And I have a 3EM on my main breaker panel monitoring my entire shop's power. So I can see at any given time, oh, I'm drawing 18 kilowatts with all the machines running. And then when the Kia breaks, it actually shoves like negative 20 amps through everything. And instead of like doing the brake resistors, it just backfeeds into the power grid. And like you can actually start to get a lot of really interesting information out of this and start to estimate your power bill and find waste. Like all my office lights inside, I only have a 400 square foot office, but they were costing me like $20 a month, which like, that's not that much, but over the course of a year, I don't know, that's another couple of tool holders. And I was able to, for about a hundred bucks, I bought a bulk pack of LED replacement bulbs for the fluorescent tubes. And I went from drawing like six or 800 watts 
to like 120. So the return on investment on that is like six months. And it's brighter, and they're not going to burn out. And they're less flickery than the fluorescents were, actually. So I, I identified that. I realized my shop lights were costing me like $30 a month. So I, I just put a switch on those. And whenever I'm sitting at my desk, I can just press the button and save a few bucks. And it, when you make it convenient to do that sort of thing, then you do it. So, And then another reason that I wanted to automate the air compressor. And I, I did this on my old compressor, too. I only recently redid it on my Kaser because I had to come up with a slightly different system for that thing. But sometimes I leave my machines running overnight and I know they're going to be done at two or three in the morning, but I don't want to come back to the shop and turn off the compressor. But I also don't want to leave it on because I I know I have air leaks. It's going to just sit there and run a handful of times and that costs money. Right. So by putting that on a smart switch, I can either schedule it to turn off at a certain time or I can just glance at my phone after I eat dinner and I've got a camera, I've got wise cameras on the machines. I can just see, okay, machine's done, and I can turn the compressor off remotely. That's awesome. That's the one that I really want to implement because, like, I've got a a timer on my compressor. I can have it turn on and off at set times. mm -hmm. But it'd be kind of nice to just be like, oh, I'm heading into the shop. Click, you know, app button, and I know the compressor's up and running or something like that. Yeah, I I have a thing set up where my phone's probably going to do it, but I can say, hey... Siri. Okay, didn't listen to me. Hey, name <laughs> device. I'm going to work. And it like fires up the compressor. It turns on the shop lights. It Previously, it would also turn on my air dryer, but now that's just built into the compressor. It can set the thermostat. I, I drive a Tesla now, so it actually preheats or cools the car as well because I, I have automation set up there. So like as I'm brushing my teeth, I just tell it I'm going to work. And like the car is, is cooled off before I get there. And it tops up the battery for me if I'm plugged in. It'll go and change the charge limit from like 80% to 100% so that <laughs> I, I have the battery peaked up. Mm-hmm. And like with my commute, I usually will be back at whatever my previous charge limit was. Because you don't want to leave the battery at 100% all the time. It's not good for it. Right. But I can get a few extra percent while I'm getting ready in the morning. And like I, then I walk into the shop and everything's ready to go. That's so ridiculously that's awesome. <laughs> also, my anodizing setup. I have my all of my anodizing stuff on these smart switches, and it takes a long time for the heaters to come up to temperature and the, the chiller to bring the bath down, especially if it's a hot day. But I can just tell it to get anodizing ready. And like when I wake up in the morning, it starts heating, and when I get there, I can get to work right away. That's so epic. You're, you're living in the future, man. That is I'm so trying. cool. <laughs> and then because I found these, I, I hadn't looked at them before, but because I found the, the Shelly uh, Uni, that has a 12-volt output. So now the possibilities really expand, because uh, or 12 or 24 volts, because now I can put solenoids on it. If I want to turn off the air compressor and shut off the line so that any leaks aren't a problem, I can do that. If I want to, I have a agitation via the compressed air system for anodizing. So I could put a solenoid there so that it's not constantly using up air whenever the compressor's on. I can shut off the agitation. And then when I haven't run the get anodizing ready routine, I get air agitation and heaters and chiller. And, and then, I've been tempted to maybe make a coolant filling thing like this, but that feels dangerous. Yeah. Um, <laughs> using a, a smart switch and a solenoid. I, I, I might stick to the physical valve for that. Right. I mean, it would be super cool to be like hey name device give me five gallons of coolant but that could also be very dangerous 
Yeah, I think it would work, but it's that one time where it hangs that I would worry about. Right. So, yeah. I don't know. Then, we'll see. The uni or uni or whatever, that's what you're using for your compressor, right? You're just hitting the remote enable switch? Yeah, because it, it has a PLC in it, so I just have to flip one of the digital inputs. But on my old compressor, and if you're running like a piston compressor or anything with a pressure switch, you need to do either one of two things. You can, if it's a small compressor that doesn't have a separate contactor, if it's just using the pressure switch, you actually need a pretty big contactor because you're going to be switching the entire compressor input power on and off. In the event that you have a mid-sized compressor that has a pressure switch and a separate contactor, you just interrupt the line between the pressure switch that activates the contactor. You cut that, put your uh, relay in between, and now the pressure switch can indicate on all at once, but the uh, contactor won't come on unless you want the compressor running. That way you don't bypass any safety features. If your switch is off, your compressor is always off. If your switch is on, the compressor is on only if the pressure switch wants it to be. And your pressure switch can be on without your compressor being on. So that, that was really easy, like one wire installation. And then the, the Kaiser was a moderate difficulty increase just because I had to go set up the software parameters as well to listen to that digital input. Okay. But yeah. I mean, that's not that difficult. Just read the manual and it, it's not that straightforward, but you can figure it out. Yeah, or, or ask your your local service people; they can probably talk you through it. I think I'm gonna have to look into that for mine because that would be that would be really nice, mm. really really nice. There, there yeah, are a the, few little things like that that I want to automate. The only thing with the Shellys is that their app is terrible. So I found that the best way to get them set up is to connect with them via the direct. They make their own Wi-Fi network at first when you first plug them in. Mm-hmm. So they'll host their Wi-Fi network, connect to that. Look up in the manual, there's a default IP for their web server. Connect to that on your phone or your computer, and then give it your Wi-Fi SSID and password, at which point it'll say, okay, we're going to go and switch over, and then you can connect to it as usual via your standard network. But like the app tries to do that, but it does it poorly, and it works like one time out of 10. But I've had 100% reliability connecting to the device directly via the web interface instead of the app. Interesting. Okay. And then the, the, where the Stream Deck ties into this, I have a bunch of little automations on my computer too. I've got one that takes a screenshot of um, a region on my computer. I usually use this for like setup sheets or uh, I just open the Fusion Tool Library sometimes and it sends the screenshot to a monitor I have mounted above my UMC. Right. Well, and you told then, us about the M130 issue last time and I think touched on that. Yeah, yeah. So I, I've got an automation <laughs> that'll go and, and send that over. But I also have a bunch of other stuff. I've got like input device switching so I can switch between my headphones, my wired headphones, my Bluetooth headphones, my speakers really easily. And because you can ping these Shelly boards via their API and the Stream Deck program can make API requests, now I can just make a button that toggles my shop lights and switches that. So I don't have to open an app on my phone. I don't have to yell across the shop. I can just push a physical button that's right at my desk. And same with the compressor. And it even does state changing. So I have a couple that are set to just toggle and it'll toggle the state regardless. And then my compressor, I have like a red Kaser icon and then the like standard yellow color that it comes in. So it, it's, it indicates off or on and I can tell what the situation is. Because if the pressure is high enough, it can be on and I don't realize it. So I'll go and try to turn it off or I'll try to turn it on and it was already on. I turn it off and then my machines alarm out. Right. So having the, the state changing on my little stream deck icon is cool. 
That's and, excellent. Like I'm just building all kinds of little scripts that give me some quality of life improvements. And also sometimes some laughs. I have one that whenever I do something sketchy, I can press it and it says like shake hands with danger. <laughs> <laughs> and I've got another one that's like red alert. And that's just, if I press that, it turns all the shop lights off. It tints my monitor red. It plays like an air raid siren. And it shows like a, a like a war game, like with a nuclear launch on like a globe and then like a mushroom cloud or something. It's, it's silly. That's too much. Fun. I don't. You got to find a little entertainment throughout the day. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you also mentioned anodize, and I want to close the loop on that story from last time because last time you had just gotten some new chemicals, figured out possible what fungus or something like that, uh, algae. Yeah. So, did it get better? Did do you think you solved it with science? Solved? No. Vastly improved. Yes. I okay. still have a lot to learn. I still have some more uh, seance to do. But the new chemicals did help a lot. The The new dye is holding up much better over time. I got it set up and ran some parts right before I took a break for Christmas. Then I went and I traveled for a week. And then I came back and I did some shop projects for a week. And then ran another batch of anodize. And my dye still worked. Hey. So that was pleasant. And yeah, it didn't break down like the other one did. I didn't have goop floating on top. So yeah, the, the new dye is working great. And then the degreaser they sent me is phenomenal as well, um, especially if you heat it up to the like 140 Fahrenheit or so. Cleans like nobody's business. And then they have some stuff called dye lock. So what, what can happen when you dye some parts after anodizing is you go and you, you uh, rinse them off, you put them in your sealer bath, and then you still you watch it either fade or like your dye actually kind of flows out of your part a little bit into the sealer. Mm -hmm. which A, tints your sealer, which can affect further parts, and B, it means that when you pull it out of the dye, what you see is not necessarily what you're going to get afterwards. So it makes it hard to judge when you have dyed it enough to match a certain color. So this dye lock product, I don't know what it is, but you, you rinse your part and then you put it in there for a minute and it's pretty much what you see is what you get as far as like when you pull it out of the dye bath initially. And then when you seal it, you don't get any fading uh, or further dissolution. Is so, it like similar to duplex sealing then? Where it's like nickel acetate and then hot water or something like that? No, th this is just like an extra additive or like an extra chemical in the process. You still seal it normally however you would typically okay. do that. I use like a mid-temperature sealer that needs to be like 160 to 190 Fahrenheit. I usually run it at like 170 because my heaters, I, I don't have that much power up there. I can't get it up to boiling. So having the mid-temp sealer seems to work well. Also, I don't have as much in the way of evaporative losses with the slightly lower temperature. They also have some cold seal product that I am interested in because if I can run fewer heaters, that's less hassle, less hot things to worry about, less evaporative losses, which when it's something I use infrequently, just means that my maintenance is lower. I don't have to carry as much water upstairs. Right. So yeah, it's still a work in progress. I'm experimenting with it, but I am getting much better results and more consistent results than I was before. Great. So yeah, the, the most readily available anodizing supplies are not necessarily the best ones. You got to dig a little bit. Awesome. Well, in the vein of wrapping up stories from last time, you also made a purchase. Yeah. So we might have bought a Datron. I, <laughs> I don't remember at what stage we were at when we recorded last. I, I think I was thinking about it. 
and had convinced myself of it, but I hadn't actually pulled the trigger yet. Yeah, I, I think to roughly quote you, I don't think I'm going to be able to unconvince myself that this is the right thing. Yeah, I mean, it was all, things were already in progress then. It was just like that last second gut check to make sure that it was the right choice, make sure that we could sustain it and figure out exactly all the options we wanted on the machine. Because I think last time I talked at length about how I didn't think we could afford the three kilowatt spindle and the two kilowatt direct shank would be adequate for us and everything. Mm-hmm. But shortly after that, a well-respected member of the instant machinist community reached out to me and strongly suggested that I splurge for the HSK spindle. And I talked to a couple of other uh, folks and I think that's definitely the right decision. And they, they, they still had a three kilowatt HSK machine in stock and were able to work me a deal that it, it, it still costs a significant amount more money. Like I think it was roughly a decked out Haas mini mill additional, not to mention the additional cost of the tool holders, which are like $500 each or something. Right. But as far as like, I just don't want to get an expensive machine like that. That's kind of specialized and regret not getting the better spindle. I don't want to be limited. It, it was still less than I thought it was to add that on. So, well, and all it takes is breath. what one spindle replacement, and you're at the HSK spindle. So, like if it lasts yeah. longer, it's yeah. Well worth and it. they're supposed the HSK spindle are supposed to be a lot stiffer and a lot more uh, tolerant of little bumps and things. The bearings are beefier. Also, the torque band is one of the major points the two kilowatt spindle i didn't realize is really light on torque i thought it was the neo spindle basically mm-hmm. because I, I saw what ed kramer and others were doing with the neo and i'm like oh man that seems like plenty for what i would want to use this machine for right and i, I was informed or I corrected rather that the two kilowatt sixty thousand rpm m8 cube spindle is not the same as the two kilowatt forty thousand rpm neo spindle Very different construction, very different stiffness and torque and everything. So, yeah, the the HSK was the only way to go. It it has like three times the torque, and you can act. There's there are people who are actually machining steel and titanium and stuff with it, and taking monster cuts in aluminum, and it it's just fine. It's happy to do that all day long. Whereas if I tried to do that with the two kilowatt higher RPM spindle, I would probably be sorely disappointed. Might still be okay for work in aluminum and plastics, but. You never know when someone's going to ask me for a large sheet part titanium and having some extra torque will be nice. And if I break an end mill cutting said titanium, I don't want to have to like cry and worry about the bearings and you go, oh no, was that it? Was that too much? Did I, did I ruin it? The, right. the HSK, especially with a reasonably small tool, it, it's still a high speed spindle. It's still sort of fragile compared with like a 40 taper spindle or something. But it can take a little bit of abuse and be fine. And if I shorten the life from 20,000 hours to 10,000 hours, well, that's still more hours than I have put on any spindle since I started machining. <laughs> so we're probably okay. It, right. it'll, it'll make us money. And then what tool holder system are you going with? So really the only option that seems feasible for that machine is the Shunk Tribos. Okay. That's what they sell with the machine typically i was looking at some heat shrink because they should be cheaper and I, i've been using heat shrink on my umc but a lot of the heat shrink holders for hsk e25 are actually only rated for twenty-five thousand rpm really and it, well only twenty-five thousand rpm which is yeah. that's a that's a lot of speed but when the spindle goes to forty thousand, i i don't want to have holders that i can't run through the whole range i don't want to have to remember 
that I have some limitation. And I also looked at some other options. I mean, you can buy ER collet chucks, I guess, but I mean, why would you do that on <laughs> a machine of that caliber? Yeah. And I'm not so, sure that I would trust an ER at 40 grand without yeah, like actually I, I might grab it. a couple for like if I need to put a funny size drill in there that doesn't have a, a nominal size shank. Mm-hmm. I might have a few on hand, but like with red paint marker all over it that says, you know, re- remember not to run me fast. You know, I probably wouldn't run it any faster than the 15K spindle on the UMC or something. Mm-hmm. But I, for most things, though, I mean, it seems like that would be unnecessary. The Daytron is so fast and so dynamic, you can interpolate holes almost as fast as you can drill them. And since we're doing so much prototype work as one-offs, I'm not concerned with a couple of extra seconds of cycle time per hole. It's That's not going to be the bottleneck. So I, I bought like a dozen holders to get me started, plus their face mill. Uh, and the face mill is like an integral. I, I think it's actually a big Kaiser, right? They're big Daishoa now in the U.S. Yeah, the- yeah it's, 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 it's the FCR, the FCM. I forget which variant it is. It's like a custom smaller version of that that's an integral HSK shank. And those seem like really good all-around tools for roughing and facing on that machine. And then I got a bunch of the 3mm, 6mm, 8mm tribos holders for general purpose milling. And those are nuts. They're like three microns of run out. And they're actually ground such that the tool bore is slightly triangular. Uh, or it's like a, almost like that shape that you get if you try and drill through sheet metal. And it comes out kind of triovular. Right. Like lobed. Yeah, so they, they grind this shape into it. And then when you insert the tool, you put it in a little hydraulic press that pushes on three sides of the tool holder compresses it back into a uh, tight tolerance round bore your tool slips in and then when you release the pressure the elastic deformation it just it springs back and holds onto your tool and it's super concentric very highly balanced like i wonder if they just squeeze them like that when they grind them i suspect that's the case actually yeah because there's there's like some strange slots i assume edm'd into them so yeah they probably just compress it grind it and then it just springs back into the shape right but that's yeah, a cool idea. Like I, mm-hmm. I look forward to seeing how it all shakes out. When's that machine supposed to land? I'm awaiting a more accurate date. It's nominally no later than like early February. It sounds like things are moving fast enough that it might actually be before the end of the month. Awesome. Um, so it's January 9th today. So maybe by the time this podcast comes out, I might be unloading accessories from freight trucks and then just kind of pacing around my shop waiting on the machine to show up are you just waiting on trucking at this point because it's in stock Uh, i mean they've got to go and order the vacuum pump and some accessories and stuff that drop ship and then they've got to create the machine they've got to put all my options on the machine crate it up get it on a truck ship it down here make sure that i've got everything prepped so that we can receive it and then they can send someone out to do the installation so there are several steps left to go, but we yeah. we bought the machine. We It's in progress, and I'm pretty pumped for it. Well, congratulations. I'm really, yeah. really looking forward to seeing how you like it and everything you do with it. Yeah, I, I just look forward to not banging my head on the wall every time I get a sheet part. Like, it's, good, it's almost going to feel like a waste because this machine will primarily do flat two and a half D parts. But I'm sure I'll find some interesting applications for it that I didn't necessarily plan for. 
And like even being able to, uh, I saw in their, one of their YouTube videos, they had machined some like porous, it almost looked like a Ren shape type board, like the, the pattern board. But I guess you can suck a vacuum through some flavor of that foam-like material. So Ooh. they had a part that was like a guitar body that would normally be really hard to clamp and chatter all over the place because it's just like a hollow box. But they machined a negative of that, set the part on it, and just sucked it down with vacuum on top of this positive of the, the cavity. Right. It's like, okay, that gives me some ideas because there are certainly parts. I've had people ask me to make like Delrin hemispheres. They're like antenna covers, basically, or like ray domes. And it's a it's a two millimeter thick by like six inch diameter piece of Delrin. Like, how the heck am I going to fixture that to make this <laughs> this hemisphere and not have it chatter like crazy or you know really it's just going to break through the edge of the part because it'll start vibrating. Right. But I get absolutely supported that way with vacuum. So I think there's a lot of possibilities, and I just I can't wait to have it here and get to try some things out. And the, the machine is so huge. Like the, the footprint's smaller than anything else I have here, but the working area is bigger than my VM3. It'll do like 40 inches in X, and then I think it's 28 in Y. Wow. That's so crazy. So I, I can foot a, uh, fit a two by three foot piece of material on top of the vacuum chuck and cut whatever I want out of that. Like, I don't know, maybe. I don't know that I'll be competing with send, cut, send, but I might actually try and get some kind of like a budget cost sheet cutting service going for niche like above send, cut, send quality and capabilities, but, you know, still competitive if you've got the right kind of parts. Just, you know, sometimes people need precise features or they need pockets in an otherwise flat part. And I can template all of that really easily in Fusion. Yeah. And I'm, I'm going to try and just stock a lot of eighth quarter, three eighths, half inch sheet material so that I always have something ready to go. And, you know, I, I might be able to get the setup time low enough that even though this is a rather expensive machine, I might be able to offer really competitive prices and lead times and just push a lot of volume through it. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was telling you earlier in the week, like a buddy of mine has just bought a, a large format water jet and did a ton of money with zometry like in the first 30 days like i could not believe and that was just a water jet like he can't put in threaded holes without moving it to his mill or anything like that yeah so i think this i think i might be able to carve something out like that it'll have to be the right parts because i can't compete on price with laser and water jet no but when people have slightly higher precision requirements or they need some additional complex features in addition to just cutting something out of sheet where it would be really awkward to do it on a conventional mill and like mill work holding setup. That's where this thing's going to shine. Right. Yeah. Blind holes, blind threads, threads in general. Like, yeah. I think if you add those uh, thread whirler thread mills that do like the hole and the thread in one, uh, I'm, I'm on the cusp of spending many thousands of dollars to just buy like every single thread size that I use in those and like a holder for each because we have an 832 one right now that I bought for a job and it has been so handy that anytime I need an 832 thread, I just load that up and go and like already have the recipe dialed and it's like, boom, perfect thread, zero comp on to the next one. Like, yeah, I have a number of those coming with the machine with the initial tooling purchase because Datron has their version of that, but I'll probably try a couple of other brands too and just see, see what works really well. It gives me the best access because with their vacuum card, 
excuse me, I only have about 0.7 millimeters uh, below the part before I actually punch into the vacuum plate itself. So if I need, if I'm doing thin sheet parts, I need to be able to thread all the way through, but also without damaging my vacuum plate. And I know the geometry on the end of some of those thread whirlers gives you like a couple thread pitches that you can't really use. So I'll just have to find the right balance there. And maybe I, I thread 90% of it and I might just have to grab my flex arm and you know finish tapping certain situations. I mean, if, if most of the thread's still there, it's not that inconvenient. It's just when you're starting from nothing that getting right. everything aligned right is, is tough. Or if you would just have a couple of threads, you can still bork the alignment and, and end up double cutting or something. Yeah. But well, it's like, in, what, 28 thou? So I would imagine most threads up to like maybe quarter inch will be okay, if not yeah. three eighths. Like... Oh, and also I can put a back chamfer on it mm-hmm. and kind of buy myself a little bit of extra space. Yeah, because exactly. since they have that vacuum card and I can machine a little bit past the part, I can drop a, basically a dovetail cutter through the part and deburr everything on the opposite side, including threaded holes. Actually, that has me excited too, because like sheet work, whenever I use my Pearson vacuum plate, I still always have hand deburring to do. Yep. So being able to get a part off the machine that's deburred on both sides in one setup is a very exciting prospect. Yeah, I am currently in the middle of running parts on a custom little fixture that I made with a vacuum setup. And yeah, I'm having to deburr the entire backside. And it's like, you know, it's only 20 parts, whatever. But like at the same time... It sucks up hours. God, I hate it. It is my least favorite activity. (laughs) And you almost always end up cutting yourself. Yeah. At least I do. I I don't know if that's a universal experience. Maybe I'm just clumsier. I should wear gloves more often. Like you either cut yourself... Or you scratch the part and have to like mm-hmm. sand it or scotch bright it so that it looks okay, or you know you do something stupid. And it, There's yeah, always just, a lot of extra handwork. Yeah, that feels like it should be unnecessary, but mm-hmm. it's it's actually a really tough problem to engineer around if you can't break through the backside of the part, or in in the case of prototype stuff where you can't justify making a fixture special for every different part number you're running. If you're running the same thing, I guess you could back chamfer on a Pearson type palette, depending on your part geometry. Yeah. Well, like the grills that we make, I have a fixture where I flip it over and go up against dowel pins and then hold it with like the edge of cap screws in certain places and then go in and chamfer everything, but right around those screws. And like that works pretty well. It's still a pain in the ass, but it's much less of a pain in the ass than like handy burring it. So yeah. And the the Daytron is just solving those sort of problems for me in small quantity. Because like these are all solved issues if you're doing a lot of something, but I'm not. Right. So. Yeah. And if it's templated, you'll just be done. Like. Yeah, and I won't even have to worry about crashing the uh, the undercutting tool because I'll have a template that is if I use a quarter or a, it's not it's all metric stuff. So I use a six millimeter end mill to cut it out, and I drop a, a four millimeter back deburring thing in there. I'm going to have the leads and everything set so that it doesn't crash straight through the the leftover stock so it, it takes a lot of the the little nitpicky details out that normally are time consuming or take someone with good attention to detail i'm actually so katie speaking of employees although she's she doesn't really count as an employee she's she's my my partner in crime but she's taking fusion 360 classes she's doing one of the saunders machine works online classes that they posted 
it's like a hundred bucks or something, but she just, she really wants to run the Daytron. She's actually super excited about that. Like, okay, if you want to do that, you need to learn fusion and get pretty good at it because even though you might just be making simple parts a lot of the time, you need to know what you're doing because it's a, it's a complex machine that's going to be the most expensive thing in the shop by far. Right. Exactly. So like, even if the parts are simple and the machine's got your back and it has like uh, collision protection stuff, you can still do things wrong. Yeah. So well, I'm sure you'd rather her scrap the VF or VM3 spindle than the That's like a Daytron quarter spindle. of the cost. Yeah. Right. I can I can get one the next day and <laughs> Yeah. Uh, also if that machine's down for a little bit, that is not a deal breaker. It's it's okay. <laughs> at least at this point in time. Right. But she's making good progress on that and she's now at the point where she's like, "Okay, so the class says to do this, but I know I've seen you do something else before that seemed easier." And like she'll have me come over and give her some pointers and or I'm showing her how to use like 3D adaptive instead of a series of, of 2D operations and showing her like the flat strategy. And she did her first 3D machining stuff the other day. And we talked about boundary uh, management and like when to use contact point boundary and when you've got to go and make a, a sketch to get just the right behavior. Like she, she's picking up on it quick because she's been around this stuff. She just hasn't done it, but she knows the lingo and that, that's really helping accelerate her learning. Right. So actually, real quick side tangent. Speaking of 3D toolpaths and fusion, have you noticed I keep getting this super weird behavior with flat, which I think is like the coolest toolpath, except for this weird bug where if my part is not a prismatic part, like it's got, you know, weird contours, like I was doing this plate work with it recently, and it kind of looked like a two armed weird little thing. And I had flat doing the top and doing all the facing. And right where it leads in and leads out on the surface, it was leaving a one or two thou tall pyramid of material. It was oh. not tall enough that I saw it when the, it was in the machine. And then I took it out and I was able to stone it down and then scotch bread it. So it didn't look like it was there anymore, but it was super bizarre. I have seen this not specifically with flat. Do your tools have a small radius or chamfer on them? Yes, but they're pr- appropriately defined too. They're, it's okay. like a five thou radius. Okay, because if if you forget that, if you tell it it's a sharp corner and it has a little radius, even just a small one, you'll get those little pyramids. I can't say I've run into that specifically. Then, it, like if you're if you control for that possible issue, well, because I thought it was that, and the first part I ran, it my tool was poorly defined, and so I went back and added the five thou corner radius, and it was still there on the next part. I was like, okay, do I you have the that. I've got it open now. Is your step over set to something other than the default? I don't think it was. If anything, I would have gone smaller, not larger. Hmm. And I think I ended up having to go to like a third of the standard one to get a, a appropriate to, to where this weird weird. Yeah, it was super bizarre. Like, and, and it is almost not noticeable. So how... Did it show up in the simulation? No, it didn't. Huh. Yeah. It was super bizarre. It was only a handful of parts, like three I would or four. wonder if it's something about like the tolerance settings. So there there's the toolpath tolerance, there's the smoothing deviation, which is specific to flat. That's kind of a new thing. Right. And then there's whatever your machine is doing for if you're running on the brother, you've got their their high speed codes and everything, and Haas has the G one eighty seven. Right. Like I, I wonder, depending on your, your feed rates and what all your tolerances are set to and how your post is managing it, if you're just getting like the perfect storm of 
rounding errors or something. I think it must have been because, because it was I have super not seen weird that on any of my machines. Okay, um, but on, I, I figured on, I'd bring it up, you know, <laughs> yeah, just in case. I'll, I'll let you know when I get the Datron here because then I'll have another data point, and it's it's a very quick machine as well because I, I have a 2006 Haas and a 2021 Haas, but you know, brother might be different, Datron might be different, and that yeah, I'll, I'll look for that for sure. Yeah, I appreciate it. I mean, and like I wasn't setting the world on fire with speeds and feeds either. I mean, this was like. I was facing and like because of the way the plate work was set up, I was facing with a three eighths inch end mill and I was doing 75, hundred inches a minute, something like that. Like, oh yeah. That should be fine. Yeah. And I was in the most accurate high speed mo- mode. It was like, you know, that's I don't know what weird. the hell is going on, but it's something weird. But anyway, I, I won't sidetrack. The yeah, keep podcast. an eye on it. I, I would be really curious why that's happening. Well, and I've seen it in two parts now, and both of them have been weird outer contours. Like any prismatic part I've used it on, totally fine, not an issue. It has only been weird shaped contours, like out, or outside contours, whatever you want to call it. And I guess that this is probably beyond the scope of the podcast. Put posts on the Fusion forums if you can, or if you can make an, a, a similar looking part that's not under NDA or something. If you can, if you find the time to get duplicate results, that might be a case where getting Autodesk on that would be good because flat is a new toolpath, and it, it might have some bugs with weird edge cases. Yeah, because otherwise it's amazing. Like it is everything I ever wanted from horizontal. But yeah, and, now it, works. and it just keeps getting better. Yeah. Um, now that it has, you can do multiple depths. You can add finish passes. You can do some rest machining stuff. Like it, it's getting better and better. Right. Yeah. The only thing I want on it and bore is a finish overlap. If I mm-hmm. could get that on flat and bore, I would be so happy. Yeah. No, definitely a step in the right direction because horizontal had quite a few pitfalls and like it felt like a tool path that you could use, but it would spend a ton of time cutting air around the outside of your part or it, it would lead in in kind of a strange way. And you just, you had very limited options with it. Yeah. One, it looked ugly, like, Flat looks good. It looks like what I want a toolpath to look like. Yeah. And I, th- I think you can even do the pocketing or you can do like a, you can tell it's a favor parallel type toolpaths. And yeah, you got good control. Yeah. It's really cool. So the other questions we had were back to automation as well. Obsidian Tools asked, how do you wage a button presser versus a robot in terms of CapEx and stress? And then Billitech was talking about palletized five axis machines. And if you thought about going that way and focusing on programming and leaving the loading, unloading to somebody else. So like, what are your, you said right before the podcast that you've kind of achieved your short term dream goals. What about in the future? Have you looked, what are your thoughts on future automation for the shop? I mean, I would love the machine shop that runs itself while I sleep. And all I've got to do is wake up, open my MacBook and program from bed. I mean, that sounds great. But realistically, even if you have a Kern with a pallet changer, as uh, we've heard on business of machining, like those things have still have issues. And even if you throw silly amounts of money at it, you've still got to maintain them. They still take a lot of work to get running just right. So I, I think that's an idealistic dream and I, I will continue to chase it. But in the short term, I still need some skilled people around I, I kind of want everybody in my shop to be someone who can program. I don't really do the button pusher thing because we are a small shop and everybody just need, like, 
I, I need people who can, are flexible and can do lots of different things well. Because otherwise, I'm just supervising people, or I'm doing all the hard stuff, and they're they're doing the yeah lo- loading stock, pushing button. Like it, that that would take me just a couple of moments, but our bottleneck is programming. Mm-hmm. So, for us, I'm hiring programmers who are going to occasionally run some parts, automation, and like adding a small pallet pool or something would be amazing. I would love to get there. That's going to happen maybe at some point in a post-Daytron economy. Once that's here and we've made some progress towards, you know, paying for itself. Maybe if we replace the UMC at some point. Because I, I don't, I like our UMC, but it's it's not the last five axis I'm going to have. So I will probably look into some kind of palletized automation on the next five axis. Okay. Um, I'm not probably going to do robots or anything because our parts are so high mix that if the robot can't change a vice for me, then it's kind of useless. And short of getting into gigantic robots that will murder me in my sleep if I step into their uh, working area, nothing can really lift an orange vice on or off. Nothing can lift a decent-sized five-axis vice. You have to have like pretty small, compact work holding if you're going to be changing entire fixtures with a robot. Or you get a pallet changer that is designed for that kind of load. And that's I think that's more my speed. Okay, And we're doing such small quantity work that if I can have a bunch of standard-ish vices and just load some different sizes of stock into them a couple pieces at a time, that's a better solution than having a robot try and load like diverse amounts of material into something. And we have to go and adjust the vice all the time for this new stock size. Yeah. Now, there's a time and place for it. It's that robots aren't really for us. Now, in the context of like what Danny Rudolph does with automating things like media blasting, that's something I would maybe consider for a robot. If we have like a, a repeat job or like a robot where I can just interchange some grippers that can grab onto a number of different part sizes and shapes pretty easily, and they don't have to be held as secure as they would for machining, yeah, I, I would love to not have to stand in front of the blast cabinet. That feels like something that's feasible. Yeah. But yeah, machine tending is probably still going to be human for a while. What about anodizing? Could you use like a two-axis robot to go tank to tank? I have definitely sketched out a modified 3D printer that like uses a regular rolled like ramps board and stepper motors and everything that goes goes and does all my anodizing. It's all there. The software is written. I can feed it G-code and just write up different programs for different things and pass it a parameter or two to go and set my anodizing current. I could absolutely do that. And I, I would love to, but that's a time v money thing. And in the end, the hardest part of anodizing, in my opinion, is racking the parts because just like I've got to come up with different fixturing for every part we do, I've got to rack it differently. You know, work holding is still a thing, even in finishing processes. So a human's still going to have to do that. And if they can do that, they can go and they can hang it on a bar and set a timer. So I don't know that the the graph of like, the time spent versus the time that will be saved converges at any point. Right. But, yeah. There's um, that, like the, there's a chart that's like, you know, if you save this much time, you should only spend this much time and it doesn't fall yeah, in and there. this much money developing it. It's like, eh, it doesn't quite converge, Yeah, but that's the sort of thing that I would just decide that I'm doing over a weekend. And while it may not be the soundest business decision, it sounds like fun. And you know, in the same category as like the air compressor automations, like, do I strictly need to do that? No, but does it make me feel good? Hell yeah. Yeah, that's super cool. <laughs> so I, 
I will leave that kind of up in the air. I don't know. Keep stay tuned over the next few years. Maybe I'll just get bored over a weekend and buy a whole bunch of aluminum extrusion and make it happen. Well, speaking of those kind of shop upgrades and stuff, that brings us to shop news and new things. But we can also use this time to talk about your week off in the shop. Like, what did you do? What projects are you you happy with? All that stuff. It's good that we're combining those because that's pretty much all that is new given the uh, short time between my last episode. So my week off in the shop was pretty good. I didn't get as much done as I wanted to, but I mean, that's normal. Things always take longer than expected. So I, I wrote out a to-do list. And when I decided that there was some other side project I wanted to take on, I would do it and then add it to the to-do list. So I at least remembered that I got a thing done. I didn't just look at this empty to-do list and go, man, I didn't do anything. So I, I did. we did things like renovate the bathrooms because our bathrooms hadn't been updated since the 1970s. And they were <laughs> this awful yellow color and it looked nasty and I hated it. So Katie painted one of the bathrooms and we replaced the sink and, you know, replaced the toilet seat and everything. And now like, it looks nice. And that's actually a really nice quality of life improvement. It seems like something that wouldn't be a big deal, but I, it makes me smile. And I put a, a shelf above my desk and I put some plants on it. And we, I, I have on Tuesday, I have some plants coming that are going to hang off the side of the UMC. And they're supposed to be the kind that like filter stuff from the air, according to NASA's clean air study. Oh, nice. So they, they might go grab some volatile organic uh, compounds that are floating around, but they also just <laughs> look nice. And they, they do well with like low light and artificial light and stuff. So if I don't have the bay door open, I'm not going to hopefully murder too many plants. Do you remember what the plant type is? There was a whole discussion in Discord about this. I don't remember exactly. I can message it to you and you can drop it in the show notes maybe. And I'll, I'll, there's a Wikipedia page on the, the clean air study that gives a whole list of ones that are good for different types of chemicals. Yeah, that'd be great. But basically, there's, there's plants that are hard to kill. And not only that, but they'll, they will scrub your air for you. So that's kind of cool. And I, I like the idea of a shop that, I don't know that I could do the red carpet thing that I've seen in some places, but I, I like the idea of a shop that feels a little bit more cozy and like isn't just a windowless white walled box where metal gets made smaller. I kind of want it to be somewhere that makes me happy. Has I, I don't have windows here, so at least I can put some plants in and invite some nature into the shop and put some technology in with all those automations and things like that. Yeah, that's great. So make it kind of fun. So yeah, we I've been doing plants. I got my I got all my chips loaded up and taken to the scrapyard. I ordered and it didn't come in in time, so I'm in the process of putting up new compressed airlines. I had the half inch rapid air system before, and it's like this. Really, it's it's half inch tubing, which means that it's like a 0.314 minor diameter or inside diameter. And the max flow rate on it is like 11 cubic feet per minute, which oh, is wow. conveniently about the same as what the UMC and the VM consume if they both do a tool change. And it's about half what the flex arm wants. It Ooh. hasn't really been a problem, but I hear the whooshing sounds whenever like I use air and then I, like it stops. I hear the air catching up in the line. Mm -hmm. But when I just had one machine in the shop, it was like 150 bucks at Northern Tool. And I'm like, yeah, I'll get an airline system instead of running uh, flexible hoses around the shop. And then I got another machine. I'm like, okay, well, I'll upgrade that soon. And now it's been three and a half years. <laughs> so I, I, I bought a three-quarter inch fast pipe. I was going to do one inch, but it, it seemed like overkill and the price increase was quite a bit. 
So it's it now it's hardline. So it looks nicer on my walls. It's not like wobbling up and down like the flexible stuff does. Um, and it will support up to 79 CFM at the furthest distance from given that my compressor will output 21, 22 CFM continuously. And the highest I've ever seen on anything is about 18 in the shop. I think that future proofs us sufficiently. Yeah, definitely. It's, so I actually, my, my weekend parallel parallels yours. We just went and bought what 90 or a hundred feet of copper line. Cause we already had half the shop or a quarter of the shop done in copper when we first okay. got the first, the kitty and like just started the shop. But now that we have the F 600 on the other side of the shop, we're like running soft lines across the floor for right now. Cause we're just like, man, we got to get this done. So yeah, we went and bought all the connectors and stuff. And now we're going to do a full loop of the shop as well. Nice. Yeah. I, I didn't really consider copper as an option. I, I don't know why I, I knew that people definitely said, don't do PVC because it will explode. The black iron pipe just rusts. If you have any moisture in your air and I'm in Florida, I do, even though I have an air dryer, there's still going to be some. So those were out, but I, for some reason I never considered copper. I don't think it would have been cheaper if we had started fresh, but the fact that we already had, I don't know, 30 feet of line or something like that, it, 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 it ended up being about half the cost of redoing the entire system in fast pipe. Okay. Yeah. And then the, the fast pipe here is nice because it's, it's painted aluminum and then they like passivate the inside. Um, right. Or it's, it's some sort of conversion coating, probably like aladine or something. So it should be corrosion resistant. It's lightweight. It's pretty easy to put up. And there's, they've got really nice air drops and things. So I have like dual port drops now where previously I just had singles. And the outlets I got, the quick connectors, have a two-stage release. So you press the button once and it lets all the air in your hose vent. And then you press it the second time to actually release it because everybody has disconnected an airline, um, especially like a long hose and had it like fire hose around in your hand. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's like it's noisy, and you don't know how much force it's going to press off with, and so that's just like a little quality of life upgrade that I'm glad we were able to kind of combine with the new lines as well. That's great. And I'm taking the old system, and I'm running that around the less used portions of the shop. So I'm going to uh, run a half inch tube up to anodizing, and then for my air agitation there, it's low flow. So I mean, I, I could run a quarter inch tube, and it would be adequate but i'll just i'll take the thing i'll I'll put a drop or two upstairs at anodizing i'll put a drop at my desk if i need to run a die grinder for a moment might put one out near the bay door so that i can fill a tire once in a while stuff like that because i already have the other system i'm not going to throw it away but i'll run the basically a high flow l around the parts of the shop that are easy to access and then i'll run the flexible hose around the kind of weird geometry of my shop where i've got to go like up to the second floor and around corners and around furniture and stuff at least get some additional use out of it yeah that's awesome very cool and that that kind of completes the loop too i want to say with compressed air you ideally want a loop system not just a like out and back right so even though one half of the loop will be lower flow if one side can do 80 cfm and then it can kind of equalize up to 10 or 11 cfm through the other side eh, that's probably still better than just doing the l yeah I, I definitely think so. So, yeah. So did that. What else did I do? Yeah, I mentioned I had a to-do list. Let's see. Let's see. I ordered the wire for the Datron. I also, in the process of doing the air, I I started hanging conduit for the Datron as well. It doesn't actually need that much power. It's got a three kilowatt spindle, which draws. That's 
I think that's like output power. So input, that's like four or five kilowatts maybe. And then servos and control and stuff. So it, it, it needs like a 15 or 20 amp breaker for the machine itself on three phase. And then the vacuum pump for that thing is a monster. It's a four horsepower vacuum pump <laughs> that does 82 CFM at basically at a full vacuum. Holy it is crap. ridiculous flow rate. The Pearson system does like 0.8 CFM. Right. I think that's input. So it, output is probably less than that. Well, that so, makes sense why you can break through the vacuum car or the, yeah. the parts and not really worry about it. Yeah, the vacuum pump will be the loudest thing in my shop and probably the largest constant consumer of power. So that's getting a little bit bigger breaker as appropriate. But I'm, I am running out of uh, slots in my main panel. I'm not out of amps, but just out of position. So I'm running a sub panel behind the Daytron and then I'll break that out into two or three circuits for the machine and its accessories. And then I, I might, I've been sharing my Tesla charger with my air compressor circuit up to this point. Mm-hmm which is suboptimal. I mean, I haven't, it's low amps, but it's still, I don't like having those together. So I, I'll break out another dedicated circuit for that too. And then at least if my something happens with the car or something happens to the air compressor, they don't affect each other. Yeah, that's a really good idea. And then that will be it. That I cannot fit anything else in the shop for space and power reasons after that. Oh, kind of fun thing I did. So I have had a reverse osmosis system in the shop forever for just getting like water for making tea and stuff and then for cleaning i'd all my rinse buckets and when i'd make up chemicals for anodizing those would be reverse osmosis but it was just one of the under sink systems and i had like a four gallon pressurized tank for it so it's six but you really only get four out of it because of the space the bladder takes up i wanted to use ro for my coolant as well but that either means buying a much larger RO system that can give decent flow or storing it somehow. And I I couldn't find a tank for a reasonable price that would let me do what I wanted. And then I was just digging around Amazon. I found an RV water tank. It's like 26 gallons. It's uh, It was pretty inexpensive and it was exactly what I needed. So I have an output from my RO system that goes into a float switch that I put inside this RV water tank. And then I found a pump that it's it always seeks to maintain pressure. It turns off at like 40 PSI. Um, and then turns back on as soon as there's a pressure drop. So I ran that on the output up into my Mixtron coolant mixing unit. And now if I open the valve on the Mixtron, I get coolant. It sees that there's a pressure drop. The pump starts going and it pumps my unpressurized reverse osmosis water that I've stockpiled into a five-gallon bucket with coolant mixed in. And it's really, it's a compact setup because I'm I'm not, I don't have a 300 and something gallon IBC tote in my shop. I don't have a 55-gallon drum. I just have... Uh, this little square 20 gallon RO container that I can fit under my stairs. And that I, that eliminates all the issues with like not having water pressure from the RO, not having high flow. And like, I can still keep using the inexpensive under sink unit because I, I only need to top up coolant once in a blue moon. I might need 10 or 15 gallons at a time, but then if it, if I only make 40 gallons a day and it takes half the day for that to fill back up, that's fine. Mm-hmm. So that's really I, cool. Total system cost might have been $200 for the RO system, the pump, and the tank. And then, That's you know, fantastic. Mixtron was more than that. But if, if you don't have a proper coolant mixing unit, get one. The Venturi ones are flaky. The Mixtron has been rock solid for it. I just dial, if I want 1% coolant, I get 1% coolant. If I spin the little ring, I get 5% coolant. And it's it's a pump thing, not a Venturi. So regardless of your flow rate, you, you do not get different results. Right. Yeah, which is really nice. 
Yeah. Yeah. Aside from that, I, I don't know. I 3D printed a bracket for my hose outlet that's been flopping around on the end of some shark bite fittings forever. I played some games, got a little bit of a break over the holidays, did some flight simming, and played some Risk of Rain with some friends. And I think we played some squad. I don't play video games that often, but my, my friends do all the time. So I'm always the the newbie who hops in and <laughs> holds everybody back. But it's fun. And like they're they're not. Like they're not assholes about it, so it's it's okay. But I, I definitely always feel like because I'm always working, I don't usually make the time to play games. Like I have no idea what I'm doing. Yeah, I actually just for the last like week or so have played some video games, and I think it was the first time I opened my Steam account in two years. Oh no! But like I saw that Steam was doing like their winter sale, and I was like, oh, I really. I wanted to try that game and so it was cheap and i was like ah okay and then I kept yeah that's it dangerous the, the steam sales are i have so many games that i bought because they were on sale and then i actually haven't played or haven't played more than a few minutes of mm-hmm. but yeah one day so in that future where i have some kind of high-end five access with a pallet pool and i've programmed everything three weeks out that's when i will play video games <laughs> yeah yeah no yeah. I, I will say it, it like so we bought Assetto Corsa, which is a racing mm-hmm. sim. And like Brad, because we bought it because it was like five bucks. And then Brad was like, oh, somebody gave me like a steering wheel and shifter and pedal assembly like a long time ago. And so he brought it into the shop and put it on his computer. And so we, we've been like, after we shut down for the night, playing a few minutes on that. And then now I'm like, man, it'd be really cool to have like an Oculus and just do VR Assetto. But I, I don't want to rabbit hole too much on that because yeah, and you don't want to spend money on things that you don't have time to use. I'm I'm very much guilty of doing that because I, I buy things with the best intentions, like oh this is going to be fun. I like do all the research and get excited when it gets here, and then I I still end up bogged down at work, and then I just feel more guilty because I have more stuff I've spent money on that I'm not actually utilizing. Right. It's like oh that's not very lean of me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean that's why I haven't bought another FPV drone because like I'd love to get back into that. But the whole reason I sold what I had in the first place was that, like, I didn't have any time for it. Yeah. Oh, one day. That's uh, the, the dream of retirement or whatever. Very far in the future. Yeah. Okay. And then very last things that I did over the break. I'm thinking of rebranding the company a little bit. I'm not sure. I just I want to do a bit of a marketing push this year because I haven't done that thus far. But I, I would maybe like to find some more customers just to diversify. And I wonder if people are skipping over us because we're P3D creations, not like some typical machine shop sounding name. I'm like, okay, should we be like P3D manufacturing, P3D precision, P3D CNC? So I bought like a half dozen domain names for ideas that I have because they're cheap. <gasps> right. Um, again, not very lean of me. I should probably make a decision first, but you know, what if someone else got it and it was, it was a good idea? Because like, I think... There was one of them I was looking at that someone else has already taken. So I'm like, shoot, if someone has that one, what if what if another one is taken? What if that was the one? Yeah. So I don't. Well, I, for, so for, as a cautionary tale about that, uh, a friend of mine came up with a really good idea recently and wants me to help him. And I was like, oh, I'll get the the website. And I looked, and like most of the iterations of what he wants has already been taken, and they've just been parked. And like GoDaddy or Google Domains or whatever, and they're like, "Oh well, you can pay us twelve hundred dollars plus a thirty percent commission on whatever they want for the domain plus whatever they want for the domain, and we'll get it for you." And it's like, 
I don't think so. Like, <laughs> yeah, no, I, 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 there was one of those that I came across. I'm like, nope, I will get the 999 one for 999 for a year. And then whatever I don't use this year, I'll just let expire. I, I don't have any reason to hoard those. I'm not banking on striking it big on like domain name hoarding. But I, I don't know. I, I don't, I have really mixed feelings on that because also like we're established under the name we have, but I don't know if it would be that confusing and it, it might help clarify for potential new customers that like we are a machine shop and this is what we do. But I, I don't know. I've got to think some more on that. I'm, I don't know much about the marketing side and then I don't know how much it would break our search engine optimization. It's like we, we rank okay. I, I, that's another thing I'd like to dump some time into, but like we rank okay on some things. We do get some traffic to our website and I don't want to ruin that. That's taken however many years to get established because age is a factor in that. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if you know, changing the main domain and like redirecting uh, the old one will still retain any of that or if it basically resets us to zero. And then I want to write some blog posts and I want to put some more rich content on our website. And I don't really know that I want to do any direct paid advertising because I feel like that's just a waste if you don't have the rest of it in place. But I, at some point this year that I would like to actually put in some effort on that and, and figure out how to achieve more than just the word of mouth work. Because like, that's great, but I, it doesn't feel as consistent as I'd like it to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And you, you never know if, if, if we only get word of mouth and then ac- we accidentally upset someone over something that, you know, whether it, it is actually our fault or not, like sometimes people are just weird about things. Like I, I don't, I don't want you know one bad uh, experience to go and ruin the lot of it. I, I'd like to have enough channels going on where, you know, hope, hopefully we can weather a storm if we need to. Right. You know, while of course always doing our best and never encounter that situation, but you know, real life is real life. Yep. Yeah. It, it definitely happens, unfortunately. Well, that brings me to the last question I ask every guest, which might have to do with some of the things you've already discussed, but what did you uh, research this week? One. So, yeah, we've already talked about all, all of the other stuff, so I'm not going to spend any more time on that. What I've been really diving into is getting good, smooth five-axis or really multi-axis movement, so whether four or five out of fusion. I've achieved some passable-looking toolpaths before. But I am really growing fond of using the collision avoidance on like steep and shallow and some of the other strategies because it lets me reach into tight places with tools that I have on hand instead of buying really long reach ones. Mm-hmm. And there's also just some features that really lend themselves to simultaneous five axis where you can you can drop a swarf on it and do something in one pass what would take you 10 minutes to surface. So that's all well and good. And things look great in fusion Looks smooth in the simulation. And then you bring it to the machine. It's like, Whoa, what is that? Why is it hesitating? Why is it not maintaining my feed rate? And this is ongoing research. I don't have an answer. I, I don't have a conclusion to this just that I, I'm starting to dive into a lot of the Autodesk university classes because I know there have got to be some tidbits of information in there. And I'm going back and rewatching NYC CNC videos that maybe I, I have avoided before just because I'm like, yeah, I, I probably already know all that. But, but now I'm, I'm looking for that nugget of information in the like hours of content that makes the difference for me. Cause sometimes mm-hmm. you just have to dig for it. Yeah. That, that like passing comment 
that that Rob Lockwood or Lars Christensen makes that's like, oh my God, how didn't why why are we not funding this? Why hasn't someone told me about this before? Yeah. So I and especially since I have a Haas, like I realize that's a limitation. And if I had a machine that could chew up code and spit it out a little bit better and had much better internal smoothing algorithms, maybe this would be less of an issue. But because I have a Haas, which is not the the best at processing huge blocks of code and not the best at doing simultaneous multi-axis motion, it has its own internal like smoothing parameters and, and like um, there's like parameters for, for when it considers itself to be in position and it can move on to the next block of code. And like there, there's lots of stuff to play with. So I'm kind of looking for the fusion-centric stuff first, and then also just the, the tricks and the settings to get exactly the most out of my machine that I can possibly get. And then that, I don't know, I'd, I would really like to do some super sweet-looking parts with this thing. But my life right now is filled with B-over-travels and retract and reconfigure issues and like, okay, how, am it, like, how do I balance surface quality versus calculation time because sometimes I'll hit generate on something and I walk away for 10 minutes because it's just going to take a while. Right. And it's like, okay, am I, am I dropping my tolerance too much? Was, is that not even part of the problem? Then I'll raise it a bit and I see some faceting or I, see some, I can see all the different points on the finished part. It's like, okay, that's too much, but like, there's got to be a good balance. And I'm, I'm trying to establish my defaults as well as a good workflow for different situations on what to change when. Because learning five-axis machining is like learning a whole new CAM program. I bet. Like, yeah. Fusion is just completely different once you start ticking the boxes to enable the, the multi-axis stuff. It behaves completely differently. There's a whole new set of settings that I, I'm not well-versed in yet. So I, I'm figuring it out. But yeah, jumping from like 3 plus 2 indexing to, to full multi-axis is quite the journey yeah yeah i mean i know i've looked at some of those tool paths and i'm like i have no idea what half of this stuff means so yeah, i can't imagine like i have a a steep and shallow here it's like okay so i have the there's a primary mode and i feel like i understand that for the most part i usually just leave it on vertical where you can do lead and lean you can do two point from point or two and from curves it's like okay so what kind of geometry would i use that for and do I have to make additional sketches or do people usually select model geometry for that? And then there's a smoothing distance and a smoothing angle, which seem to have something to do with when it tilts the machine, like before or after a direction change and like over what distance it's allowed to do that. But it's like, I don't know if I want that to be super dense and let the machine control figure it out or if I want to leave that kind of coarse, but potentially get some choppy motion or hesitations in between those and you dive pretty deep into like the mesh triangulation that fusion does and how that affects your tool containment and your your tolerances and like some of the hidden options that are in compare and edit that can affect your quality as well as your calculation time drastically yeah i've always and, found it interesting that they hide surface triangulation tolerance in compare and edit because it seems so vital to getting really nice 3d surfacing mm -hmm. but if you go and you go too hard on that then you're waiting around until the end of time for calculations so yeah I, I wish it were more exposed yeah but like just getting a frame of reference for what are normal values for these is so hard because like people don't 
often post all the nitty gritty there. They're just like, oh, yeah, here, I selected these two contours and now it's doing this beautiful swarf. And there's like all kinds of black magic going on in the background. Or or they did leave that to calculate forever. Or it calculated instantly and they have some great combo of settings. But like, I don't I don't know, is, is 0.1 inches of smoothing distance, is that huge? Or is that tiny? Right. Like what's normal there? At least yeah. with tolerance, I can kind of visualize that. But once we're talking about and, and also, it's like smoothing distance, but we're talking about rotary moves in a lot of cases. So there's also smoothing angle, and the the interaction between those isn't something I necessarily understand. Yeah, that's... I mean, I, I guess if you are listening to this and you know better, reach out to Nick. Yeah, if you have some great 5-axis resources that you can point me to, I would appreciate that. Because I like I'm digging through the AU classes, but there's a lot of them, and a lot of them run kind of long, so it's it takes some time. If you've got some favorites, uh, you know, DM them to me. I will greatly appreciate it. And if the answer is it's your machine, get a better machine. I I understand. I'm working on it. <laughs> <laughs> but but humor me and help me make the most of what I have. Right. Because yeah. hoss bashing never got anyone anywhere. No. No. Exactly. That, that's. Yeah, I'm sure there are ways to make it at least less painful. So yeah, and I'm not getting bad results. I just I want it to be better. Right. It's not. I'm not looking at it. It's not atrocious. I just kind of raise an eyebrow once in a while, or I'm I'm watching it come across the center where it kind of hits the singularity, and it needs to rotate C180 basically instantaneously while moving uh, linear in like XZ, and it's like okay, there's got to be a way to instead of doing that transition move right in the middle of this linear move, do it at one of the ends when I'm already kind of diving into a corner because I won't get as much of a witness mark then as it's, you're kind of just rocking back and forth across like the zero degree mark on the B axis. And like, you can sort of see it sometimes. Yeah. I I want to say that Dan Pacific's surfacing uh, video had something about avoiding singularities like that. Yeah. I I think he did one in Fusion and one in Feature Cam, but I okay. I, I want to say I remember him saying something specifically about that. Okay, yeah, I'll check it out. And then oh, also on to add more layers to this. So Fusion has their you can define a machine in the post, but now there's machine simulation. You can define the machine kinematics from the machine definition actually within Fusion, and those both have slightly different behaviors for me. And there's all kinds of options in there. And again, I don't know what's a typical value for those. And those will drastically affect the actual post-processed output. There's you know, your own tolerance settings there. And there's linearization stuff. There's singularity handling stuff. And then if you have to do a retract and reconfigure, there's like stock expansion, a safe retract. And like Fusion can't currently simulate a lot of that. So I want to make sure I've got safe values where I'm not about to uh, rotate things on a, a reconfigure and drive a tool holder right through my part. Yeah. But th- these are all just kind of new and advanced features. So as compared with a lot of the three axis fusion stuff, they're just relatively undocumented and there isn't a, there aren't five videos on YouTube explaining how they work. Like you've got to dive deep into the the depths of the power users and either pick their brains directly or, or find like comments they've made in the past right? to gain some insight. Well, if you figure it out, you'll have to make one of those future I, 10 I guess YouTube so. videos. 
it's going to be a while before I have the confidence to say with authority that, oh yeah, this is how you do it. I'm it, because I, I don't have that much experience with it yet, but if I figure it out, I will definitely share with anyone who asks. Awesome. Awesome. Well, in closing Patreon, thank yous. Thank you to C Perry and Vincent Maza. Appreciate you joining the Patreon. Let's me put on interviews like this with Nick and Nick. Thank you so much for coming and spending another few hours talking to me and letting me quiz you about all the fun stuff you're doing. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me again. And here I was thinking we'd keep this short. I thought we could. Well, we're shorter. Two thirds. Technically. (laughs) Well, thanks again. Thanks everyone for listening and I'll be back next week.